We ain't making it through Acts in 2019, bro. He says we're going through Acts this year, which has been fun, at least for me, most weeks um, as, a, as a listener, um, to watch the story of a blossoming church unfold. And if you uh, are a long-term or at least a five-year member at Christ Pres, you know the long-running gag is that when Jeremy is out of town and Jason fills in, let's pick the most weird parts of Scripture to give to Jason. But it didn't happen today. If, if I, as your associate pastor, cannot winsomely and generously preach the gospel of grace through Paul's conversion, I need to become an Uber driver or, or something else, a fence painter or something. So we get Saul's conversion today, which is awesome. Beautiful, beautiful passage. And so I'm going to read it for us, um, and let's uh, pray afterwards. But this is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Uh, It's in your bulletin, but uh, today we are going to flip into a few different places. So you may, if you didn't bring your copy of Scripture, you may want one from the pew back in front of you. If you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the Bible, um, I would love to give you one. We keep a few um, over at the office to give away. So if you need a Bible, find me afterwards, and uh, you'll leave here with one less problem in your life. All right. This is uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ from Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. Ananias, just like the prophets of old, responded, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I love Ananias here. I love the the brutal, graphic honesty of Scripture. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Are you sure? This is the best we got going. This is the plan you want. And the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer 
for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, here are your sheep, hungry, wasting away from lack of nourishment. But here's the rich pasture of your word. Would you lead us into this green field? Would you bid us to eat and take all the good news of Christ that we can into our bellies, that we may rise like Paul, take food, the food of your word, and be strengthened for the task ahead. Meet us here in the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. Expose us, lay us bare like we read in Hosea. Bind us up, break us and then bind us up in the finished work of Christ that we might be set free to follow you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So reading Acts, it's easy to get lost in the stories, the miraculous stories and the mundane stories. It's easy to forget that Luke wrote it for a benefactor named Theophilus, or friend of God. Uh, he wrote it that Theophilus might better understand the global nature of this thing, this growing group of people uh, that will be called Christians. The person and work of Jesus Christ that defines them and the spirit alive in them that drives them. And Luke's writing to Theophilus about what it means to be a Christian, what the church does, and Paul, Saul at this point, is the major voice. Especially in the coming large influential cities of the Greco-Roman world, Saul ends up proclaiming this message in detail to very high court officials, of ultimately making it all the way to Rome. But there's a sense in which Acts 1 through 8 were, were written to get us to Acts 9, because Acts 9 through 28 are getting the gospel into the world through the, through the mouthpiece, through the, through the voice, through the mission of Saul. There's a sense in which Saul's conversion is the linchpin of Luke's intent to show the ever-increasing ripple effect of the gospel message. Remember Christ before he ascends in Acts chapter 1 says, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, where we saw the church grow immediately and exorbitantly to Jerusalem, to Judea, the area around the countryside, to Samaria even, and then to the ends of the earth. We're going to see all of those bullet points be ticked off through the rest of Acts. It's through the complete change of values and lifestyle that Saul ends up in front of powerful people and in front of normal merchants proclaiming the good news of salvation by works. If you turn back um, in your copy of scripture to Acts 7, 58, you find out that Saul was a young man. And he was a young man from Tarsus. 
in an area or a region known as Cilicia. Now, Tarsus is a city still to this day, from what I understand, and it's about 10 to 12 miles north, right where the Mediterranean turns, and you have what, what is modern-day Turkey here, and I believe Syria is uh, what butts up against it. Turkey and Syria, they were fighting there a couple years ago, just inside about 50 miles from Syria, uh, along the Mediterranean, and then about 10 to 12 miles north, that is Tarsus, and the, the little region or area, Cilicia, right in the middle of modern-day Turkey. And Paul, or Saul, was born into a rigorous, rigorous Jewish family in this thriving Gentile city and thriving Gentile region. Now, it's funny, we know Saul, is, when he pays his own way, what does he do for a living? He works for North Face or Patagonia. He's a tent maker. Um, in that region to this day, they still make uh, tents out of uh, a woolly goat uh, that was there. So that was, Paul was trained as a, as a Jew in a Gentile culture to work with an animal that would have been kosher for him to touch in a goat and, uh, and, and learn a trade. Um, and they still do that to this day. His family was so Scared, though, remember, they were religious Jewish Pharisees and surrounded in a polytheistic culture that they sent Paul to be trained under the most sought-after teacher of the day, um, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And this story of Paul's conversion is retold three times in Acts. Uh, first, here in Acts 9, but then Acts 22 and Acts 26, he retells the story. And each time the details kind of vary, but it's the same story. Um, so his upbringing, at least in Tarsus of Cilicia, was one of restriction, uh, one of fear, um, one of us versus them, tribal superiority, Jewish exceptionalism. They created a Jewish bubble around Saul in Tarsus until he was sent to where it was safe uh, to let your hair down and be a Jew around Gamaliel. And when all those seeds of his own legal exceptionalism, his own ability uh, to self-righteously maintain commitment to the law, when those seeds blossomed in Saul's heart, we see him become a sort of Jewish jihadist, a sort of inquisition torturer of the late Middle Ages. Saul's entire life was crafted around being better than others, and he was so committed that he was quite successful. He says of himself in Philippians chapter 3, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I am blameless, or was blameless, he would say. He spent years mastering the law and mastering his own body and his own impulses to align with Pharisaical observance of that law through intense study and regular practice. And we're first introduced to Saul, what I said at the end of chapter 7, verse 58, when um, they, they lay their feet, uh, they lay their cloaks at his feet. Um, that's chapter 7 when he's first mentioned, but back in uh, Acts chapter 6, as we're learning about Stephen, we read in verse 9 that there were 
region-specific denominations in and among the various synagogues in Jerusalem. Not all Jewish synagogues in Jerusalem were PCA synagogues. They weren't all Southern Baptist synagogues. They were based on where you came from to Jerusalem. Were you a Jew from North Africa and Alexandria? Then this would be your Alexandrian synagogue in Jerusalem. This would be if you were from Damascus in Jerusalem. This would be if you were from Cilicia and their name. So this is what it says. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Saul, with all of the amazing accomplishments that he personally attained, that he lists for us in Philippians chapter 3, Saul was from Tarsus in Cilicia. And him and his crew from Cilicia in Jerusalem, the synagogue there, when they went to challenge Stephen... They were flummoxed because they couldn't deal with the grace and the power and the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. The spirit alive and active in this Gentile, Stephen, exposed the inadequacy of all Jewish Saul's knowledge and training. And the shame of, it, of him, a Hebrew of Hebrews, being bested by a Gentile of Gentiles exposed his soul and it was twisted to the point that when we pick back up with Saul in chapter nine, he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. And he goes like Dog the Bounty Hunter, maybe. I don't know any other famous bounty hunters. Uh, but he goes to the high priest for extradition papers. And he sets off to the synagogues at Damascus to destroy any, uh, what it calls, belonging to the way, uh, which would be what the Christian church was called at the time. The Christian message was determined to be a dangerous sect uh, or, or segment of Judaism, and it had to be stamped out. And Saul was the tip of the spear for the Sanhedrin, the leading body of Jewish elders in Jerusalem. Now, that's a young man's job, isn't it, to, to travel with hatred and, and beat people um, till they agree with you? But he was not only young and impassioned. Paul had a lot going for him. He was a faithful Jewish Pharisee, and so he could gain access to the high priest, to the Sanhedrin. But number two, he uh, was born with Roman citizenship, so Paul could engage in the checkpoints, in the Roman legal system. He had his card to travel across borders. And number three, he was born and raised in a Gentile town, and so he had within his person a blend of religious, political, and situational awareness that allowed him to move freely in and out of both Jew and Gentile cultures. And Saul was going hunting, as it were, and he had the perfect camouflage for whatever the terrain. Now, in his epistles, we learn about the darkness and the depth of sin, as well from his pen, uh, the beauty and wonders of redemption. We see it in his writings, but what we're going to see this morning is we see it in his life as well. So glance back over at Acts chapter 8, 
verses one through three. It says, and Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But here's what it says, but Saul was ravaging the church. Saul was entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. I think it's one thing to be Peter or Stephen and stand up and preach uh, in front of a, a, a culture that disagrees with you and to suffer for that. I think Peter and Stephen, in a sense, knew what was coming for them. But for those who responded in faith to the grace preached to them and came in droves to this new church to be at home with their kids and have the door broken in, imagine the chaos and the the screaming as people are grabbed by the scruff of their neck, by their cloak or by their hair, and violently drug out into the street for resting on their Savior and not on the law. Paul, this is Saul, the hero in many senses of the Christian faith, exporting hate to all those who had escaped the first blow of persecution in Jerusalem. Paul may have been a committed Jewish scholar, but his intent to impose his interpretation took an evil and violent form. And so here's a place for us to consider the history of the Christian church down through the centuries. What an ironic tragedy that, the, that our own history is filled with this same sort of story, that we have been those who have gone in and persecuted those who didn't agree exactly like us whether it be from another denomination or another religion or another lifestyle, we have been Saul with, while in Christ. What, what evil um, lurks in the church's history and even today in the church's current place. Um, we murder one another with words. As we split hairs, sometimes big and important hairs, over practices and preferences of style. Well, here's where we need to be reminded um, from this story in Acts that if the cultural trends of the Western world have anything to say to folks like us in the Reformed world, it's this the landscape of faith is growing bleaker. Less and less people in safer and safer countries are committing themselves to Christ, to his church. Let's make sure that we're making friends while fighting the enemy, not making enemies while fighting our friends. Is that fair enough? I know that I have deep and lasting disagreements with folks along the religious spectrum I have my own preferences, things I'm committed to and convinced of by Scripture. I like the Reformed world that I find in the PCA. But Jesus loves people that aren't like us. He's so much more gracious than any of you. <laughs> and I'm thankful that we have Methodist brothers and sisters, beautiful Baptist brothers and sisters, even Catholic brothers and sisters. Calm down, people. The gospel is bigger than our understanding of it. 
And his grace is greater than all our sin and all our confusion. Let's make sure we're fighting the enemy while making friends and not the opposite of that. That preaches grace to a watching world that is growing quickly tired of our shenanigans and our one-upmanship. Saul's evil intentions grew out of the soil of pride and shame, out of an elitist view of himself and his tribe, and it drove him to despise and mistreat others. Do you see places today where sincere religious people share Saul's fear and act in Saul's hatred? I think there's the global Muslim-Christian conflict. That's a perfect example. But so are our political and racial realities at home. There's a reason why, uh, uh, along with today's theme, the confession of sin was what it was today. Because there's still so much brokenness around that we convince ourselves to be okay with that Jesus is not okay with. There are places for us to fight, places for us to lean in, and we have to, or we're faithless, and we're cowardly. But there are just as many, if not more, places where we need to say, yeah, that doesn't matter. Not to me, anyway. To zero in even further within the Christian faith, within Protestantism, within Reformed Evangelicalism, all along that road there are malcontents, what one of my mentors calls solution-rejecting chronic complainers. There are those people here at CPC as well, solution-rejecting chronic complainers. These sorts of folks attack anyone who doesn't believe exactly like they do. They damage reputations, and worse, they tear up souls, and... Sadly, Reformed denominations are full of this anti-Christ mindset. Wherever we claim to know God in Christ and yet vilify, attack, accuse, cast suspicion on, mock, gossip, and demean other faithful Christians, we break our vows. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. And so, using Paul's negative example, I challenge you to examine your heart for anything like his critical, angry, bitter spirit and to repent and seek the heart and lifestyle of Christ who painfully and graciously intrudes. Here's my own story. I had a strange childhood. I've told you this a few times. My extended family that formed me in my childhood was about half hippie and half redneck and 100% awesome. I love them. I love them. This is how bad they are. When we go, they basically think I'm the Mensa of the family. I'm so, I'm, I'm like an evil scientist, I'm so smart. And for those of you who know me, know that that is not true. So you would love my family if you love good times. They're amazing. But the long and short of it is they had to help raise me because my mom divorced my very abusive father long before I was even one. I'm proud of my mom's strength and resiliency but being raised by a single mom made things difficult for us growing up in Houston. We moved around a lot. I think I counted up, I went to four different elementary schools and two middle schools. I'm pretty sure that I became the class clown as a form of self-protection to all the change in my early life. My mom remarried the summer between my eighth and ninth grade year and we started going to this local Baptist church And eventually I had my life interrupted by Christ. It was beautiful and I wouldn't have drawn it up this way and I wouldn't have it any other way. 
And it wasn't long after my own conversion that in conversation on the phone with my biological father, I asked him some things. Now remember, I'm a freshman in high school. I'm an idiot. But I'm an idiot in Christ. And I'm trying to figure out what this Christian thing means based on the life that I had growing up. And I'm asking him some hard questions. And it ended in him disowning me over the phone. Now granted, I had only seen him every other weekend for a while, for a few years. Um, but that felt like a trap door that I fell through and I never hit bottom. And I remember uh, staggering out of my room in a fog, in a daze, and I made my way to our living room. My stepdad, I, I remember him um, propped up in his recliner and I just collapsed into his arms. And he had no idea, we had sort of a standoff relationship because I had been the man of the house. And now here's this guy that comes in, and so we butted heads. It was never that bad, but I collapsed in his arms weeping. And he had no idea what to do. What is going on? And I forced myself to retell what happened through my own tears, and I begged him, please don't ever disown me. Please don't ever say those words like that to me. So he swore not to, and he hasn't to this day. Fast forward from that time, four years about, and I'm in college at a Bible study nearing the end of my freshman year, and the guy leading the study taught us that we could lose our salvation, and all of a sudden that fog outside my room returned, and I felt the trap door open again, and I couldn't feel the bottom, and I waited like this little sobbing boy for God to finish what my dad started. Because if my dad gave up on me for not being enough, then God certainly would too. And I was terrified. I went into this existential tailspin and I ran home to my pastors. As soon as I got in the night before, I set up a meeting the next day. And I remember to this day the way they cared for me. They sat with me and they preached and applied God's unfailing love for Jason the sinner because of Christ's perfect obedience. I knew about grace as a term, as a doctrine, but I didn't know at that time about grace as a person, as a man, Jesus. As I began to come to grips with God's perfect and unchanging love for me in Christ, I was set free from fear, from terror of abandonment. So that's my story of coming to faith. You have one too. And it's equally as beautiful and stirring as mine, I promise you. But I attribute my childhood trauma and that collegiate crisis to be the primary reasons I came into the Reformed world. Because it was only here that I found a God and Father who would never speak an ill word or threaten me because I'm hidden in Christ, the perfect and perfectly loved Son. God is my father because I'm in the son. I have a God that will never abandon me, never leave me nor forsake me to use his own words. And so that's the way I've come to understand, the way I've come to explain when I get the opportunity, the message of Christianity is that you can be fully loved in Christ despite who you are in yourself. So here's the reason I tell you that very personal account. It's to set the stage for what we're about to see in Acts 9. So here's the question. Who has Paul been terrorizing? The church, men and women of the way. 
He's been killing Stephen and helping uh, to break down doors and drag people off. Who's Paul been terrorizing? The church. For all we know, Paul never had any interaction with Jesus of Nazareth during his earthly ministry, but when Jesus knocks him down, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my children, not why are you persecuting my followers, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus, I'm the one you're persecuting. Union with Christ is paramount to everything else in this life and the next. Jesus is so unified to those that Paul is bothering that Jesus himself is bothered. As Jesus is completing his earthly ministry, he tells a parable in Matthew 25 about entering glory as those who've cared for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the imprisoned, and what the correct response to those should be by people of faith. Matthew 25, 39. When did we see you, they ask. When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you naked and imprisoned and clothe you and visit you? And the response from Jesus is terrifying to us. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now look at Paul again, blinded by the light in the middle of a dusty road outside of Damascus. Paul's now learning for the first time that it was in and through Christ, Christ the crucified and risen king, that God identifies with his people. Do you see what that means for us? God aches for our pain. He's so united to us that when you hurt, there's a sense in which he identifies with it. When you are blessed, he rejoices. That's the call of the church. Weep with one another that weep and rejoice with one another that rejoice. In Christ, we are bound together. We are one. Could he stop the pain? Absolutely. So if Christ doesn't stop the suffering of the church, and he doesn't, not even after redeeming and reclaiming Paul, he doesn't stop the pain of the church. And so what does that mean for us? One, we can rest assured that he is at work redeeming that pain. He is buying it back, and it will shine in glory in heaven. And secondly, it means that he's present and persecuted alongside us. God is so personally and intimately identified with his people that Christ is said to be in us and we are said to be in Christ. Saul's entire existence up to this point had been one of performance, one of seeking acclaim and adoration in an attempt to measure up to God's exacting standards. And for, free, for three days, the text says, he, he was blind. He, he couldn't see and search anything. He didn't take either bread or drink. How many times do you think Paul replayed the story of getting knocked down by light and hearing the voice and remeasuring all of his actions in the past, his zeal to persecute the church with finding out that he has been persecuting the Lord of that church? How many times did Paul retell that story? Thousands in three days? Maybe. Maybe that's a low number. 
But here's what Paul learned in Jesus saying, you're persecuting me. If you go and read this week, read one, two, read five, read eighth of Paul's epistles, this is what it means when Paul says, in Christ. Paul doesn't talk about being a Christian or not being a Christian. He says, you are in Christ. The terminology was given to him by the Savior on the road outside of Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This people is in me. And that phrase, in Christ, becomes his de facto terminology. The way Christ met Saul left an imprint on his soul. It marked the ways he both lived and preached. It formed him and molded him into one so impassioned to spread this word that he went from being willing to take life to being willing to lay down his own life, knowing that he had been crucified with Christ and would also rise with him. Now that phrase that Paul uses, crucified with Christ, in the Greek it's one word. And in the Greek it doesn't exist anywhere else. Paul is so enamored by this message of union with Christ that he has to create neologisms, new words, there's no way for someone to be crucified with someone else except in Christ. I'm crucified with him that I might rise in his resurrection. He didn't know all of that quite yet, but a man named Ananias was on his way to restore his sight physically and spiritually as well. Ananias was a Damascan disciple and not one of the many who had fled persecution in Jerusalem which means that the gospel had already escaped the boundaries of Jerusalem, Judea, and had arrived in the city of Damascus and was bearing fruit. Ananias is given the, taunting, the daunting task of loving his enemy and praying for the one who's persecuted him. So I read it in a funny voice, but I want you to picture that sweet brother living as a minority in a culture that despised him, getting tasked with approaching this pit bull of a man Saul and trying to pet him. He's honest about his fears before the Lord and bold to follow through despite his concerns. Notice two things about Christ's response to Ananias. First, it's vital that we grasp that he says Saul was called or chosen to carry God's name. Far too many of us settle for knowing that we are called and never set out to carry God's name. God's name is Father, Son, and Spirit. We're saved and sent. We are called to carry. We are gathered now together, and we'll be scattered shortly after. And this is what it means to be in Christ. Saul, with his cultural collision of Jew and Gentile, would be able to move and speak this unchanging word in a changing world from kings and leaders down to the commoner and tradesmen. Called to carry, that's first. But second, I want to draw your attention to the closing line of communication to Ananias regarding Saul. I love, love, love this sentence. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's had an easy life up to this point, and now that he's in me, I can't wait to show him what's ahead. I think the best way to understand that powerful statement is to examine, again, Saul's previous existence. 
prior to understanding union with Christ, Saul was more than willing to cause suffering to others for the sake of God's incomplete name. But now Christ says, I'm gonna bring him into myself, pour my spirit into him and lead him into so many, uh, so many amazing and dangerous adventures that he'll never believe it. So shortly after this story, Paul ends up having to ride a basket down out of a, a wall, out of a window. Paul gets stoned, he gets imprisoned, he's shipwrecked, he gets bitten by a poisonous snake, venomous snake. His friends betray him, gets in arguments with folks he loves, and eventually, if tradition holds, he's beheaded outside of Rome. All that stuff that I read earlier in Philippians 3, Paul's resume, his CV of accomplishments, he lists all of that, and here's what he says afterwards. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Scubala is what he says. Raw sewage is probably the best way to think of it, but that may not be offensive enough. I count them as excrement left on the sidewalk. All of that list of accomplishments, Hebrew of Hebrews, it's not just meaningless, it's crap. It's to be stepped over, it's to be grossed out at. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubala in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now that comes 30 short years after getting knocked down into the dirt in Damascus. God says, I'll show him how much he must suffer. God showed him, and Paul said, thank you. I wouldn't have it any other way. This suffering that you gave me for your name far exceeds anything else I could have had on my own. Ananias relays the story to Paul. He comes in and blesses him, and really at that point, Ananias disappears from view. We don't run into him again in the pages of the New Testament. But what an astounding story of bold faith. The world would never be the same because this brother risked life and limb to call an enemy a friend. Saul regained his sight and more importantly gained the Holy Spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Because God was at work in Saul's trauma and in Ananias's bravery and that's the hinge that acts the hinge that the New Testament, the hinge that all scripture turns on is that God is sovereign and we make decisions. And I wish I could clear up the mystery more than that, but I can't. I can't be any more specific than scripture. And scripture says that God is responsible for everything that happens and humanity gets to take part in his plan, whether by faith or faithlessness. We're not fatalists. We don't think that God has set everything in place and now nothing hinges on us. No, we have to go and tell because we are in Christ and Christ in his spirit is going and telling. Last year we passed out these prayer cards and I apologized for the cheesiness of it. I don't know if you remember that. This is hokey. This is borderline 
embarrassing. But the PCA, the Reformed world, is not known to be a praying evangelistic people. And I say shame on us for that. It takes well over 100 church members in our denomination for one conversion. And so we passed these cards out and said, it seems like in the pages of scripture, not written by Calvin, but by God's hand, that he expects us to pray for people's hearts to be changed, to be softened. He expects us to pray for boldness to step out and have awkward conversations. And so, yeah, I don't like it, but God honors it. We passed these out last year, and there were at least two conversions I heard of from people who wrote names on these and committed to pray for them. My, sis, my mom's oldest sister, my Aunt Jean, came to faith right at the last, and she had been on my list along with my uncle, who hasn't yet. So I'm going to ask you to fill that out and pray that God would intervene in a family, a friend, or a neighbor's life and change their heart. Pray that we would be both warm and bold to share the message of Christ's redemption. That we would do something so countercultural, so politically unwise, to call them to walk with Christ by grace through faith. Last week, Jeremy helped us see the transition in Acts from huge conversion crowds to the zeroed in individual emphasis with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and now with Saul, and Saul will go in and have more individual conversions. We are, brothers and sisters, called to carry God's name as well. But if he doesn't go before us, our labors are in vain, and so we're gonna pray. And here's what I don't want. I don't want you to take that and fill it out because you don't wanna feel guilty. I'd rather you just not. I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't, I don't want to manipulate you. But look, God is doing what he said in Christ. He's growing his church. He is building his church. The gates of hell will not overtake us. And I want you in on what he's doing. But if it's not something you want to be a part of, just throw it away. No hard feelings. We're going to pray. It's going to happen. I think you'd be happier on this end of it. But no, I promise you, you may be one who needs it still. Maybe put your own name on there and pray. Here's where we'll close. Saul is not the hero of this story. Ananias is not the hero of the story. Christ is the hero. He's the persecuted one who intrudes into Saul's evil plans and into our own. Christ is the bold one who came to a place of certain danger, who felt the sting of our hate that he might preach grace to bless Saul's raging heart and our own raging heart. Christ has called us to carry his name to the kings and to the commoners of the land. And the suffering it'll cost us is real and it will sting. But on the other side, we'll see them for what they are and we'll say with our brother and friend Saul that these light momentary afflictions have prepared us for a weight of glory beyond all comprehension. And this is the word of the Lord in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this word that both comforts and troubles us. It troubles us because it asks that we do bold things like tell others about your great grace. But it comforts us knowing that whether we uh, succeed or fail, we are resting secure in you. And that you so identify with us 
in our sorrow and in our joy that you step into creation again and again in the spirit. We come now to this table of grace and ask that your spirit would awaken a hunger in us that only Christ can meet and that you meet us. In his name we ask, amen.